Hey, Katie. Yeah? What do you call an alpaca with a carrot in each ear? <laughs> what? Anything you want because he can't hear you. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. That's like one of those jokes, you know, that you can just sub in like any animal and it works. Yeah, but I actually loved it so much. <laughs> Well, hello, Alpaca Pals. So I know that when most of us think of a new destination to visit, we browse Instagram travel pages, or maybe we scroll through Pinterest in search of inspiration. And there's some destinations that always appear. For example, the beaches of the Thai Islands, the cenotes of Tulum, the temples of Bali, and the blue roofs of Santorini. But some of us avoid those places And this is why. Many of those places are suffering over tourism, which results in crowds, expensive prices, and arguably a lack of authentic culture and experience. So we seek untouched destinations. This is exactly why in 2017, Lucas and I decided to go to Myanmar. After traveling Southeast Asia for a few months, we were fed up with the tourist crowds. So we boarded a plane to Yangon. Uh, This was the most empty flight we've ever taken in our lives. It was literally Lucas, me, and one other couple. Although things are starting to change now, our experience of Myanmar wasn't like anywhere else that we've ever been, and that was because tourism hadn't yet developed there. That's why there was essentially no one on our flight. But our trip to Myanmar was met with criticism from some. Some called it dark tourism, because the country was in the midst of the genocide of the Rohingya, an ethnic minority that lived mainly in the northern region of Myanmar's racking state. But we felt that our visit could have a positive impact. We made a point of positively supporting small and local businesses that weren't government-affiliated. In November 2019, The Guardian published a headline that read, Concerns over rise in dark tourism in Syria as the war enters the ninth year. The piece argued that there had been a rise of Western tourists heading to Syria and that they've been met with criticism from locals. Tourists headed to Saudi Arabia and to Afghanistan are also met with similar criticism. So what does it mean to travel to regions that aren't easily accessible because of conflict or because of geopolitics? Is this dark tourism? And can there be benefits to this kind of tourism? To delve into this question, we're going to chat with James Wilcox. He is one of the founders of Untamed Borders, an adventure travel company that guides tourists into regions that are difficult to access. If Untamed Borders sounds familiar to you, you probably recognize it from our conversation earlier this season with Andrew Jury. Um, It was an episode on extreme travel and truth-finding. Andrew actually said in that call that James was the person to talk to, and so that's why we're talking to James today. Hi, James. Hi, uh, my name is James Wilcox. I'm the founder and uh, help organize stuff for a company called Untamed Borders. Um, We arrange travel and logistics in sort of Central Asia, the Middle East, parts of Russia, and north and east africa we've been doing this for sort of 12 years and we guide primarily for tourists but we sometimes work with professional people with documentary makers researchers um artists photographers journalists and yeah that's basically what we do we sometimes have fixed date trips that individuals can join we won't do private trips and then we just organize almost anything that that people want in those in those regions and what countries does Untamed tend to go to? Oh, I mean, so we began in Afghanistan and Pakistan, so we still do a lot of work there. Um, little bits of Western China and, and parts of India, all the former Soviet Central Asian countries, parts of the Caucasus, Iran, Iraq, um, most of the Middle East, including Saudi, Yemen, Syria, uh, Israel and the Palestine territories, and then um, sort of the Horn of Africa, so Djibouti, Eritrea, Somalia, Ethiopia, and then bits of Central Africa. So uh, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Sudan, DRC, that's pretty much the region that we cover. So sort of from Central Africa to um, to sort of Western India and China. 
Yeah. So um, I had mentioned in my emailing with you that on Alpaca My Bags, we often discuss the meaning and the nuance of the terms extreme and dark tourism. And um, we find that they come up a lot because they're such subjective terms. And I know in our email, you said that you don't wholeheartedly agree with these terms as describing the kind of travel that Untamed Borders provides. So do you want to share with us um, your insight into this? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, we try and avoid in what we do, you know, when we, when we show someone, uh, we, we guide people in Afghanistan, or we guide people in Somalia, a lot of the times these countries uh, in Europe or in North America, there's, there's kind of one narrative, and that's that they have a lot of problems, that they're very conservative, that there's a huge amount of violence. And so obviously, when we guide there, we want to show the countries in all aspects, the cultural aspect, uh, geographical, historical, architecturally, as well as the geopolitics. But to then name what we what we do in those countries as dark tourism, it's just not accurate. I mean, it's just not what we do. So we would never describe ourselves as doing that. I mean, for example, I just came back from Somaliland last week where I helped uh, organize the uh, Somaliland Marathon, which is the only uh, mixed-gender sporting event in, in, in Greater Somalia. And so it's people running together, local companies getting involved in supporting the event, um, everybody having fun. And, yeah, running a marathon is extreme because it's a hell of a long way to run. But doing it in Somaliland is really interesting, but I don't think it's uh, it's hot, but I don't think it's extreme because of the country. So that's why I don't really like the... Uh, um, the term, but that's a general thing for me. I don't really like very sort of easy labels. Um, it's much better to see things for what they are rather than just stamp a label on it and say that's what it is, that's dark tourism or that's extreme tourism, and then move on. So that's what travel's about, isn't it? To sort of look for things uh, a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the issue I have with the terms as well. It's really hard to just like blanket apply these terms to specific like elements or types of travel because there's so much nuance to it and and look i i think we've talked about this before as a company all we can do is you know arrange trips and to try and give a framework for people to see those to see the countries that we guide in but how people react and how they portray it and how they maybe blog about it or or tell their friends about it is is down to the individual traveler and so perhaps some of these some people do fit into what could generally be classed as a as a dark tourist or as an extreme tourist. But in our experience, that's not the majority. That's a really good point, because I do think that the way that people talk about a destination will perpetuate this idea that a place is like extreme to travel to or dark to travel to. And I can speak from my own experience. Like when I traveled to Myanmar, I was getting messages from people saying, you're crazy. I can't believe you're going there. And I was there being like, everything is totally fine here. I'm completely safe. And like, this is literally like any other country I've traveled in Asia. Um, But from the outside, it can look a different way. And then if someone else were to travel to Myanmar and portray it in a way that fed into that stereotype, I think that that just perpetuates this idea of like extreme or dark tourism. Yeah, for sure. And and that's and, and, and it's it's no fault of anyone's. I mean, that's what the international world sees when thinks of when they see think about Somalia or Afghanistan. You know, there, there has been a narrative and it's a correct narrative. There has been a lot of conflict. There has been a lot of troubles. And that's the sort of natural image they have. But everywhere has that. I mean, if, if people say I'm going to go on holiday to I don't know what the equivalent is in North America, Tijuana, or they go they say I'm going to go on holiday to Ibiza in, in Europe. It, the instinctive thing is you're going to go there to party, but you might not be. You might be going there to uh, go to someone's wedding or, or relax somewhere or do you know, do something completely else. But different parts of the world to, to different other parts of the world have an association. And there's not much we can. That's just the way it is. But ultimately, we all know there's much more to it than that. We all know our area is much more. Uh, there's much more to it than than the generalization. So we should be able to take that step and realize the rest of the world has a lot more to offer than the than, than the sort of the generalizations that people have about them. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Um, I'm curious about the type of people that tend to join your tours. Um, I'm curious about what motivates them or if you notice any trends in the demographic of people that join your trips. I'd say that the, the people that, that join our trips are really not that much different to anybody that wants to travel because they want to go somewhere that's different from where they're from to, to culturally see something, um, to see, you know, the smells, the taste, the, the, just the atmosphere, the feel, the heat, just want or the cold or just, just feels bit being somewhere different. I think the, the people go on our trips for exactly the same reasons as anybody would go because they're going to go to Morocco or go, or go to, uh, Mexico, or they're going to go to um, to India. Um, I would say that generally, the people that go on our trips have usually travelled quite a lot. It's unusual that someone wants to travel with us, and it's the first time they've gone to another part of the world. So usually, the people that travel us have have some experience, and, and the majority of them uh, have travelled independently to a, a larger, a greater or lesser extent. So. Um, yeah, we we're fortunate that we often guide people who have a lot of experience, a lot of interest, and a lot of insight into different parts of the world. So, um, especially on the group trips, if it's a good group, you really get to meet people who have done some uh, some amazing stuff. Um, I'm just trying to think recently. You know, a guy that used to have his own business um, doing overland travel, you know, across Africa uh, back in the 1970s, you know, selling his trucks to. Uh, taking three trucks and selling two of them in Nigeria because he could get a good price for it and then driving the final one down to South Africa. Just as an example of someone we guided last year, but we often get <clears throat> really interesting uh, in, interesting people on trips. Yeah, but they they tend to be people who are like experienced travellers. I would say they're generally people who, who, who have travelled a fair bit, but like just having set foot in a lot of different countries for a, a longer amount of time, it doesn't always give you uh doesn't always give you insight. So um, sometimes, yeah, you'll have people who have traveled to a lot of places, but uh, it, 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 you wonder what they've perhaps learned from that. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed the women behind the campaign No White Saviors. Um, they're based in Uganda and their campaign centers around educating people on the impact of white saviorism. Um, they do this by using Instagram, which is a really interesting medium to use, I think, to educate people. They're obviously trying to reach a specific demographic. Um, but something they mentioned in the interviews that they notice that people, especially Westerners, will travel to Africa because they want to see what Africa doesn't have rather than what it has. And they're referring to poverty porn and people sharing images of like children that are living in poverty. And, and they're trying to point to how problematic that is and how problematic it is that people don't travel and highlight the beautiful things that Africa has to offer. And obviously, there's plenty of beauty there to share. Um, and I feel like when traveling to a country that is in the midst or has been in the midst of conflict, you could almost go into that territory. I'm wondering if, if this is something you've experienced in um, leading tours. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, we, as a company, because we guide in, in countries and communities that don't see a lot of tourists, we do have a almost a much greater responsibility. You know, we get sometimes to shape a little bit um, how tourism works in, in countries. And this is definitely something that we we do think about quite a lot because there's a fine line between um, allowing people to experience traditional ways of life and to see, you know, the reality of what a country uh, has to offer um, and it being, yeah, exactly uh, this kind of this kind of poverty porn. So it is it is a fine line. But I mean, we, we always try and make sure that people see the wider scheme of things. So, for example, again, I talk about Somalia. Somalia has more people do phone banking in Somalia per capita than any other country in the world. And Somaliland recently, where their elections were the first people to have full biometrics um, when when having their elections. So we always try and pull out little facts and little bits of information for our guests that perhaps dispel um, the myths, dispel the myths of perhaps countries in Africa being backwards and behind places in Europe when in certain areas, they're certainly with sort of money transfer and, and uh, cashless payments. A lot of a number of countries in Africa are way ahead of places in Europe 
and the same with uh, countries that are considered to be very conservative show that there's other sides of those countries as well. Uh, countries sometimes can be very conservative in one aspect, but actually quite open in another. And so, um, yeah, we often try and you know give a framework for people to to see countries in 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 a wider in a wider scope. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, and and that's something that I've noticed just in like browsing. Um, the tours on your site, it seems like there is definitely an educational aspect, um, which is important. And I think that's probably a main takeaway for people who join your trips. Yeah, for sure. Although, like I said, you know, you can only give a framework for people to see uh, the country through it. I mean, however much we could try and give a as, as wide a you know, to try and give people a wider view of the country they're visiting or the region they're visiting as possible. Someone can always just take the pictures that they want and, and, and go back home and portray it in in the way that, that they want to. So, you know, there is there's only so much that a tour operator can do. And I but I think if we act responsibly, communicate, you know, the guides and us as an operator, we communicate with the communities that we visit. As long as the communities we visit are comfortable and we feel that they're not being uh, exploited and we then I think that we are, you know, we're not too far away from it, from, from, from it being a positive experience. Yeah. Um, I actually saw you in one interview. I think it was on YouTube. You mentioned in it that you don't think that people come because it's risky. You can engage in risk in other ways. But then what is it that motiv- motivates these people? Like, do you think that obviously there's a difference in the type of person who's going to say, yes, I want to go on a tour of Afghanistan instead of like a tour of France. I I feel like there must be a difference in these types of people. Yeah, but possibly. But what I don't think it is, is to do with to do with risk in the way that, you know, people do risky pursuits like um, steep skiing or motorbike riding or parachute jumping or bungee jumping, this kind of like adrenaline buzz. I don't think this is what, you know, when people are saying, oh, people are interested in doing something risky, this is not what a trip to a lot of the countries that we guide in f- feels like. I think what it, it's more that perhaps people have travelled and they've been in areas which perhaps have foreign office uh, travel advice or state travel advice, and they understand that, um, security is much more nuanced. Risk is risk is in a way personal, but often it's the fear of the unknown that that people are afraid of. And when you travel, it's a lot of unknown. So, you know, you'll often get people that would you know, statistically, you're much more likely when you're traveling in somewhere in, in South Asia or the Middle East to be killed in a in a the car accident because driving standards are quite poor. Often there aren't seatbelts. You know, the, statistically, there are certain things that are much more likely to harm you, but people don't consider them risks because they've identified those risks. They accept those risks and they think, well, I've been in a car before, so I kind of understand how it goes. Whereas it's the unknown risks um, that often people are afraid about. So if there's anything that perhaps links people together, it's an understanding that the risks to travel to somewhere like Afghanistan from uh, from a, an insurgency incident or something like that is actually much less than perhaps the general perception is. You have me thinking just about like even myself, because I will admit, like I look at your tours and I think like I would really enjoy them. Um, and it makes me think about how over the last 10 years that I've been traveling, I've slowly started to I've become more interested in countries that are quote unquote off the beaten track. And I think that this points to a personal gravitation towards trips that are more and more, I'll use the word different. And I've also used the word like challenging, like trips that challenge me more in terms of like challenging my personal comfort and just different cultures. And sometimes I worry that I inadvertently exoticize otherly cultures and and regions by doing this. 
Because, for example, like I recently went to Mexico City and it didn't, a lot of people love Mexico City and they have great things to say about it. But when I left, I, I wasn't that blown away by it. And when I thought about why, I think it's because it wasn't different enough. And I guess what I'm asking is like, is there, is is that problematic? Do you think like you can end up engaging in ethnocentrism when you have that attitude towards travel? That's, uh, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's something about um, travel to a region where there's some really interesting stuff to see, uh, you know, physically and, and culturally and experience that doesn't see many tourists. And I think that's just about, there's, there's a natural um, authenticity that you feel like you're having an experience that is your experience. It's not an experience that's arranged by a tour operator or arranged by the fact that the tourists go to a certain place every year. So everyone gets the same one. So that kind of exclusivity of experience, I think is something that people like and want. And if they've experienced it once, they want to see more of that. Now, whether that is, and you'll forgive me, I, I, I'm not always up to speed on some of the terms. Um, how did you describe it? Um, potentially ethnocentrism. Um, so it's it's the evaluation of other cultures according to preconceptions originating in the standards and customs of your own culture. So in this context, what I mean is constantly trying to look for cultures that are further and further away from your own standard and custom of culture and that becoming almost exoticized. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, I think, um, and we don't do a huge amount of it. I think there is a, um, there are people that are very keen on, and I'm going to use uh, quotation marks, kind of tribal tourism. And I think that's very much, often it's a visual thing, often it's photographers. Um, they want to go to see people who live in a very different way. And I think that can be um, exoticizing things a bit. And ultimately, it leads to the deterioration of those traditional ways of life because the tourism kind of takes over. I think a lot of we what we do is people have perhaps a perception or they have an idea or they want to dispel the idea of what it's like to live in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in Saudi uh, because often it's there's not so much information about what normal life is like there. And so people will be there, they'll talk to people and they'll see people and they will probably find things where there's a certain amount of commonality and they'll find things where there's a certain amount of differences. And I think that's what, what, what travel's about. So it's possible that, that there's a small percentage of people um, do see that exoticism but i think as time goes on there is less and less of that people are much more connected than they used to be um and there's a greater understanding that i think certainly in in, in the people that we guide that there's always going to be big differences but then you're always going to find some uh, commonality as well yeah and when i think about this concept myself i think like a big part of it is just mindfulness yourself as you travel I think like you get out of travel what you put into it. And so if you go into it um, with the mindset, like I'm going to travel here and I'm here to experience what this country is beautiful for and what it has to offer rather than like it's like tribal people and like experiencing that performatively. I think like we can control that aspect to a degree. But I think um, authenticity is a really interesting point in all this because I like tons of travel companies will use this as a selling point. And actually, like it's really interesting. Cuba authenticity is a big part of their marketing for um, tourism, for bringing people. They say, like, come experience authentic Cuba. And then it makes me wonder, like, how can you really access an authentic experience when you visit a country? for two weeks is that really possible yeah i mean look authentic experience i think especially in this sort of uh small group adventure travel market i mean i think we all use it a lot 
because effectively what we're trying to do in a way is to distill that kind of experience yet when you're an independent traveler and you meet people and you, you you get that kind of insight that you know we've all felt when we've been traveling um, and you try and somehow package that and I think that's what we talk about when we uh, talk about authenticity because I mean everything is authentic in its own way I mean we're experiencing it it's happening it is real but I think what we talk about as as tour operators uh, as an authentic experience is that you're going to a place or you're seeing something that is just happening it's not there because a bunch of tourists are showing up Um, I think an example I give is somewhere like Petra in uh, Jordan the city of Pet- like Petra and the city attached to it are there purely because well Petra's not, but everybody working there is pure they're purely because Petra's there. So any experience you have, any interaction you have with people is through the prism of tourism. Tourism has created all of that. Whereas other places, especially cities, cities function and operate every day because of they're a centre of commerce, they're a centre of trade, they're a centre of education, they're a centre of government. And a few tourists coming here or there really doesn't alter the fabric of that city in, a, in, a, in much of a way. So often cities are more, and again, I'll use uh, um, quotation marks, give more of an authentic experience in general than uh, rural areas. And of course, the trips we do, we barely see any other tourists. So the vast majority of the trips that we do and we organise are in places that see minimal tourism or no tourism. And so I guess that means that that experience is more authentic within the terms and the parameters of, of what you know I've just described as authentic. I think you've tapped into like a really interesting point too about cities because I have experienced this myself in Jordan. We, um, my partner and I, spent a lot of time in Amman, and when we came home, our Jordanian friends were like, "Why were you in Amman? There's other things to see. Like go to Petra, go to Wadi Rum, and we did go to those places, but I think we were." so attracted to Amman because it felt like we could just sort of join everyday life of real Jordanians in a way that, like you say, the the town close to Petra, the entire town is oriented towards tourism. So you don't have the same feel of, and I'm going to say it, authenticity there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what, I think that's what a number of our guests look for. They look for something that is um, authentic and something that um, allows them to create uh, a connection with the country as well as just enjoying, you know, the things that they're seeing. Mm. Um, I actually read in the news yesterday about this concept called second city travel. Have you heard of this phrase? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I had not heard of it either. Basically, like people have named what we're describing and it's emerging now as a style or type of travel. So people are saying, oh, I do second city travel, which is the like principle that say you go and visit Amsterdam, you will go and visit a second city in the Netherlands um, to balance the experience. And, And the approach is meant to like reduce the impact of over tourism but it's also meant to help you access authenticity in a way that you can't when you go to these landmark cities i think that's uh i mean and you hear about it as well i mean in australia a lot of people say they prefer melbourne to sydney um in 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 the netherlands i mean the the tourist board two years ago has said that they're not promoting amsterdam anymore they're only ever going to promote other cities because there's too many people in amsterdam and not enough in other places so i don't know whether this is a a stealth bit of dutch um uh tourism <laughs> marketing but um yeah i think so i think you know you'll often talk to people and you'll describe a city and someone will be like oh i loved it i had a great time there and there's, you know it's a city that's got nothing really to see but it's a typical city from that country and you get that that authentic authenticity and it's it's great i think they're perfect examples you can't do that as a, as a tour operator you can't say we're going to go to the city there's nothing really to see but we're just going to hang out and and you're going to feel <laughs> how it is it's really t- you can't really do that yeah. as an independent traveler i mean just going to a nondescript city is is always a great adventure it can be awful but it can give, you know, you can have uh, experiences there that, you know, you, you'll always remember. 
So I wanted to delve into another topic, a sort of adjacent topic, and that's Syria, um, because I think it's a really topical destination to discuss right now. They've been in conflict now for over nine years, but tourists are now going there. And this has been noted in the news recently, I've, I've been seeing. Um, so for context, our alpaca pals who might not know, Syria is in a civil war that's led by the Assad regime. This has resulted in the deaths of over 500,000 people and displacement of half its population. James, I think that Untamed does bring tours to Syria, yes? Um, we've, we've guided people to Syria um, since... 2017 yeah so we do um yeah we do take people to syria absolutely so in an article that the guardian published last november they reported that some local syrians aren't happy to see tourists coming they're saying that western tourists coming have uh has been met with fierce criticism um, for example, Bakri al-Obaid ran a small tourism company in Damascus before the Syria uprising began in 2011. And according to him, this is a quote from him, uh, what the tour- tourism companies are doing now has just one goal, normalization with the regime. They are doing this to show the world that Syria is safe and fine and the war is over. These trips whitewash the regime and let the world forget the atrocities committed against Syrians. It is really depressing and painful to see tourists come to your country from overseas when your house is confiscated by the regime and you can never go back home. So, of course, this reflects the feelings of one Syrian. Um, I don't think it would be fair to assume that all Syrians feel that way. I've actually read in other writing and reports from people who've traveled there that many Syrians are very happy to see tourists because to them it's refreshing to see foreigners coming again. Um, But I'm curious what you think about this point about whitewashing the regime. Um, I mean, I think that um, tourism or cultural exchanges or um, or sports they do normalize countries they do create uh, normality and they do therefore take focus away from other aspects of what's going on in the country I think we talked about Afghanistan and Somalia having very much a you know, for a lot of people in the world, there's there's kind of one narrative about those countries, and it's about conflict and destruction. And so, it's a it's a positive thing there where um, people can see that we can take people to go skiing in Afghanistan, or there are mixed gender uh, sporting events in both countries, or there are things that, that are normal happen normal happening, and that normalization is positive because it gives a different impression to the outside world, and it's positive because as you said, for people within the countries, they see normality after years of conflict. And I think that's a positive thing. On the flip side, of course, it also normalizes the the government. It normalizes the administration. It normalizes what's happening in that country. And of course, the things that have happened in Syria are, have, have been horrific, absolutely horrific. And, and still in the northwest of the country, there is still fighting, there is still the civil war occurring. So for Somebody who feels that the conflict is not over and, and, and feels that the Assad regime and knows that the Assad regime has carried out um, these atrocities, to see normality returning, I absolutely see that he can see this as being uh, whitewashing. But that's what tourism does. Tourism brings normality in f- for positive reasons and potentially for negative reasons. But that is, that, that's ultimately. Um, uh, what tourism uh, does. And I mean, I definitely dispute the fact that tour companies have one goal, and that's to support the Assad regime. I mean, the people, the guides, local guides we work with in Syria, uh, the international guide who we work with, uh, who's from Untamed Borders, used to live in Syria before 2011. They're just keen to go back and to show people uh, what's happening in the country. And and I think certainly with our group trips, by having an international guide, I mean, we don't steer away from the geopolitics of the region. The fact there was a big conflict, of course, the people that travel there, they're aware of this. They know about this. They'll ask questions about this. So I don't think it's 
whitewashing in the way that perhaps it could be perceived. Um, but on the flip side, I do agree that any um, international tourists or international sports people or international cultural people going to Syria or going to any other country, they they do normalize it. And that's um, and that's the reality. Yeah. But then on the flip side, like you say, there can be positive results. And I think one of those positive results is that you are give, putting money into the hands of Syrians that can use that money to rebuild um, their homes and their communities. But then like, I also worry because can you inadvertently end up putting money into the regime if you travel there? I think by traveling, by, you know, as consumers, effectively travel is, a, is another product. By choosing where we buy our goods from, by choosing where we travel to and where we put our money, we do support businesses or regimes or practices that's just the reality of it. I mean, in, in tourism at the moment, there's a bigger push to be environmentally more uh, more aware, and that pushes tour operators to do that. Um, but people do it all the time. I mean, I, um, I'm not trying to deflect away from uh, the fact we're talking about um, Syria, but there's other countries in the world that people travel, that a lot of people travel to, such as people travel to China. Some would go to Hong Kong without thinking about it. But of course, the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur people in Western China for a number of years. Uh, there's mass detentions in that country. Um, in somewhere in the Gulf, like the UAE, a number, lots of people travel to Dubai every year, but there are uh, issues with the government in, in UAE uh, with, with human rights abuses. And so I think with Syria, because perhaps the, the conflict is so fresh and the fact that all the reporting about Syria has been on the conflict, so if there's any other description of the country, uh, that describes Damascus being fairly normal on a day-to-day -day basis. It seems very, uh, it seems to jar against all of the other problems that the country has faced, which I completely understand. Um, and I think it's the fact that how is it possible that, that, that people can suffer in one part of the country, but it be normal in, in another part of the country? It seems at odds in somewhere like Syria, but somewhere like China, that could be the case for you know thousands of kilometers apart, or somewhere in Dubai, it can be two kilometers away that people are living in, in luxury in one area and people are detained in, in camps because they have to work and they and their, their passports are not with them. Uh, they're from the subcontinent in the other. So every, everywhere we travel, we are effectively uh, in a small way um, endorsing the regime that we travel to. Yeah, and I think that you are bringing up something that a lot of travelers maybe just honestly aren't aware of or um, willfully ignore. And that, that is the fact that it is quite impossible to travel. Like if you're going to travel based on your moral compass, it's going to be very difficult to find a destination that um, reaches all those standards. Because even as a Canadian, like I'd love to promote travel throughout Canada. It's a beautiful country, but um, there's been a genocide against our indigenous peoples, and that's something that is not talked about a lot. But if you were to travel here, I think is important to know and, and know that by supporting our government, you are indirectly supporting that. And it's the same with the U.S. Like I, I struggle sometimes with some regions of the U.S. just because I don't know if I want to travel to a state where um, women are denied abortion. And so... I think it gets really complicated when you start to apply your morals and your values to the mode or the places that you travel to. And Syria, you're right, it is, it's because it's so covered in the news that we're all aware. It's just very overt there, whereas a place like Dubai, for example, I think it's very easy to just have zero awareness of what is actually happening on the outskirts of the city. Um, so another element that I wanted to bring up, this was like a bit of criticism that I found um, in my research about the way that people are covering travel to Syria. People are saying, wouldn't it be better that we give the $2,000 that we'd spend on a tour to Syria to a reputable aid organization um, and then do research from home to understand the impact and reality of the Assad regime? Because it does seem like most people who justify travel to Syria um, position the argument as, oh, I'm going because I want to understand the geopolitics of Syria. 
Um, and then the question is, okay, if you care so much, why wouldn't you just do that research at home and then put the money that you'd spend on travel into supporting aid organizations in Syria? I mean, it's not much of a question. Of course, donating the $2,000 is going to give much more, is going to be far more beneficial. I think, look, if, if somebody has traveled to Syria and had a transformative time and felt that they their time there has, has been hugely beneficial to them and then is suddenly open for criticism for supporting a regime, they're going to look for answers for why it's important that they went. And of course, seeing something for yourself is you learn more quicker and, and it's deeper, but it's, it's, it's a lazy way of doing it. Um, of course, spending $2,000 and, and, and spending a week in the library, understanding something and writing a dissertation on it, it's going to be it's going to be more beneficial to the world. But, I mean, they've gone on holiday effectively. Um, and they've, been, they've gone somewhere where they feel they've, they've learned a lot more, and they've um, they perhaps you know it, it's had an effect on them. But ultimately, it's for their own benefit rather than that of you know the greater good. That's what travel is. Travel is quite a selfish pursuit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you think that there can be tangible impact? from travel to um, conflict zones or countries that are in a difficult geopolitical moment? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think so, for sure. I mean, um, if I look at the, some of the work we've done in, I mean, for example, in, in, uh, in Iraq, um, we organized ski tours in Iraq. Uh, this was our fourth winter doing it. And from the first trip, which was bringing a few ski tours out to Iraq, the second year, we had a small um, ski race and there was a, a winter festival in, uh, in a small place called Choman that, that started in 1952. It was stopped under Saddam. And with a small group of international tourists going out there, uh, the local tourism board in Choman decided to restart that festival again. So now it's in its third year. There are men and women skiing. There's an organization called Free to Run that, uh, create safe space for women to do sports in post-conflict areas and women from part of their program from refugee camps well from IDP and refugee camps so these are refugees from Syria and from internally in Iraq go and have a week um, learning how to ski tour um, getting away from the, the the camp and just having a positive experience so this has sort of been started and um, sort of promoted and helped by the international tourists that go there so i do feel that you can with buy-in from the local community with looking at things from a bigger picture with creating the correct uh, framework that tourists and visitors to countries to post-conflict countries can bring a um can bring a, a positive message and can inspire um people to see a, a, a better future a future with international people turning up which allows people to um, invest time and energy to create things that perhaps they wouldn't have, have felt like. And there's one other thing that I would mention from, from a dozen years of guiding in uh, in Afghanistan and other other post-conflict countries, having tourists, having a group of tourists show up, usually the first question asked uh, by people we meet is what organisation do we work from for? Because almost entirely the international community that, 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 that people that, that, that they will have seen are there to help. Um, they're there because Iraq or Afghanistan is a mess and they need international people to go there and help because people can't help themselves. But by bringing tourists, that's not people going there to help because they think the country is a mess. They're going there because they think this country is culturally interesting. They go there because they think the country is beautiful. And that is a positive message to spread. Um, that you're not going to Afghanistan because it's a mess and it needs help and people can't manage things for themselves. We're actually bringing people there because they really enjoy it. And I think that positive message is, is way more outshines um, that, you know, the financial benefit that comes in. And of course, there are numerous families across um, Central Asia and the Middle East that, that survived due to untamed borders clients. But I think the positivity that we bring in, in, in the events, the ski events, the marathons, things like that, 
is actually um, the big benefit of, of tourists visiting these areas. Yeah, do you want to tell us about um, the other things that Untamed Borders is doing to promote social change? So we, we're involved in organizing uh, two marathon races, uh, one in Afghanistan and one in uh, Hargeisa in Somaliland. And both of them are the only mixed gender sporting events in those countries. So um, in Afghanistan, uh, last this year will be the sixth uh, marathon in Afghanistan. Last year, 775 people ran across a 42-kilometer race, a 10-kilometer race, and the kids' one-kilometer race. And half of those people were Afghan women. Um, so we bring across about 20 international runners every year. They're... Uh, entry fees and from a local telecommunications company allow us to put on the event. It's free for Afghan nationals. And so it's a, it, it's not a development project. It's a non-profit event, but it doesn't need outside help. It doesn't need outside funding. It doesn't need crowdfunding. It doesn't need any of that because it's self-sustaining. It's a self-sustaining event. It's organized by predominantly by Afghans with a couple of international people helping. And it's great because the international people go there, they have an amazing time and they feel it was well worth the money they spent on the entry fee. Um, and the local uh, telecommunications company thinks it's a great event because they get exposure and everybody running thinks it's a great event because um, it's just a fun event. And it showcases in Afghanistan that it's not all uh, conservatism and violence. There are other things that go on. There are 30 million people that get out of bed every day and go to work and have fights and fall in love. And there are different narratives. And I think for us, that kind of trip and that kind of event is is kind of what Untamed Borders is about and kind of shows that there can be positivity in bringing international people and tourists in the right way to post-conflict regions. So, yeah, that's kind of an example that I would give of um, where things can be positive. Yeah. And there's a beauty to these events that you're supporting because these events could go on for another hundred years, even well beyond untamed borders. Like they have the ability to continue and and create almost like a piece of history for these regions, which I think is really impactful. Absolutely. I mean, since we got sponsorship for the first uh, marathon of Afghanistan. There's there's other events. There's a mountain bike race. There's a winter kind of sports festival on a on a frozen lake. There's a couple of small um, ski touring events that the telecommunications company also sponsors. And that's nothing to do with us. They just have, you know tapped into some small uh, grassroots sports organisations that wanted to put on some events. They've spoken to the marketing people and they've done it. So. The marathon of Afghanistan, look, if, if us as internationals, that this was it, we packed it in tomorrow, it would still happen. It would still go on. Um, and that's the whole point is that it's um, it's to set things up so that they are sustainable. And it's, it's yeah, it's not untamed borders anymore. If we decided we weren't going to have anything to do with it anymore, it would, it would still happen. And that's probably the, the thing that we're most proud of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, James. This was a great discussion. It was lovely to chat with you. No, thank you very much for having me on. And um, yeah, maybe maybe another time. Yeah. And before you go, feel free to share with everyone um, where they can find Untamed Borders. Yeah, on the website, www.untamedborders.com or the Facebook is at Untamed Borders on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So I'm sure you can find us um, somewhere along the lines. And yeah, it honestly was great to chat with you. You have such interesting perspectives. I feel like I learned a lot from this convo, which is awesome. No, good. No, thank you for trying to have a bit of nuance uh, on on travel. (laughs) It's no, it's quite nice. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's more interesting than just talking about the places because we do that all the time. And honestly, that and that's like what we're trying to talk about on this podcast, because I actually don't think of this really as a travel podcast. I think it's it's more intersectional than that. Like we bring in, obviously like in this discussion, like this was a discussion about geopolitics very much and that isn't necessarily considered travel. It's sort of like we're, we're talking about travel, but through, we're bringing in like different elements and lenses to that theme. Yeah, God, I mean, look, I've just slated off China and the UAE and uh, Syria and all of these countries as well. So probably won't want to travel anywhere now.
I really enjoyed that conversation with James. I found him um, very easy to bounce ideas off of and very willing to discuss the nuance and the impact and potentially the consequences of travel into um, regions of the world that are in the midst of geopolitical turmoil. I think that he raised a lot of great points that are really worth delving into and thinking about. And as much as I think you can criticize a tour company that is willing to bring Westerners to Syria, um, there is this flip side, and that's that Untamed Borders appears, like from our conversation, to be very aware of the implications of the touring that they're doing. Um, And I think that's something that ultimately is good to see within the tourism industry. I don't know if I would trust all tourism companies um, to be operating in the same way Um, and to be even willing to have this conversation because we were pretty upfront with James. We were like, we're probably going to ask you some uncomfortable questions. And um, that didn't scare him away. In fact, he did this interview with us twice, which is incredible. So shout out to James for that. And um, I think it's a good reminder to everyone to always vet when you're traveling. So if you do travel with tour companies, um, I think it's important to look into the people that are behind that company and into their values and um, investigate if that company is doing things to give back to the communities that they're bringing you to. Well, Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr here in Toronto. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at at Alpaca My Bags Pod. And uh, tell a friend about this podcast. I don't even want to say if you'd like to get in touch with us. I don't think that's as important. But I don't think it's important. I think we should be like, tell your friends about this podcast and leave us a review. Well, now I've said both. Should we just share this little combo? (laughs) Alpaca Pals, can you leave us a review, please? We would really appreciate that. It really helps. It puts us on the charts. So please. Anyways, Alpaca Pals, I hope you get to Alpaca your bag soon. And remember, take that train instead of the plane. <laughs>